Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. You're about to hear some talk about saying no and letting go, but you won't want to do those things while this podcast episode is going on. We are at episode number 111. Whether you've just finished a big night, it's Arvo where you are, or are chomping on some fairy floss, I'm grateful that you're with me, (laughs) and clearly in need of an Australian slang lesson. What the heck did I just even say? Somebody will tell me, I'm sure, in the show notes. Uh, You're about to hear from one of my favorite awesome Aussies in a moment, but first, I want to give a collective thanks this time to the show's patrons via Patreon, of which my guest is a generous one, like she's generous all around. Folks, sweet, sassy, molassy, you make me happy. You can consider showing your various forms of support for me, the show, and our community at joelzeslovsky.com slash support. So cheerio if you do. (laughs) Now I'm mixing slang among too many cultures. I'll knock that off. Maybe. Okay, I don't have any major life updates to share with you at this moment, assuming you would rather not hear about all the time I'm using configuring website test environments. Sexy, huh? Or how much I'm trying to ignore the U.S. presidential campaigns as of October 2016. I am fairly stoked, though, to head about 30 minutes outside of Burlington, Vermont next week for a mastermind group retreat. Ethan, Erica, Helen, and Shanna, woohoo for us, eh? Man, stoked to see you all. Now, how about I just start talking about what you're about to hear? This episode is a continuation of my recent trend towards bringing back past guests for more fun, more insight, and really to just further justify why I continue to intentionally surround myself with some truly terrific folks. You're about to hear from Brooke McAllery, who has been one of my favorite voices in the simple living, slow living, being intentional, minimalism, those communities, and of course, the zombie apocalypse scene. She is huge there. You could say we have developed a bit of a rapport after being friends for a number of years, and there is ample silliness that seeps into our roaming conversation about a host of topics. We'll explore why the minimalism label and movement can be limiting, even if you're behind it like we are, how to redefine your public persona without disowning your past, why you might want to default to no when you think about responding to people, and even a strange spontaneous science experiment I recently let my six-year-old son run. Yes, we have run wild, and you will run wild with joy when you listen to this one. There's more where that came from, and who knows where this stuff even comes from in the first place, right? Here we go. There are so many Seinfeld references and zombie-related jokes I could crack right now, but they may leave folks like you scratching your head as my good friend and guest for this episode, Brooke McAllery, and I quietly chuckled to ourselves. Now, we don't want that to happen, at least not right away, so let's welcome Brooke, the host and creator of the fantastic Slow Home Podcast and owner of Massive Wonderlust, uh, in, a, in a somewhat normal way, of course. Now, Brooke believes that some of the best things in life are naps, travel, a good book, and great Shiraz. She lives with three humans, a dandy husband, two curious kids, one dog, and some chickens in the Blue Mountains just outside Sydney, Australia, and she embraces living a slow, intentional, happy life with a heap of passion. Brooke, welcome back for chat number two. Thank you, my friend Joel. It is so good to be talking to you again. Yes, big smiles all around. Hopefully, folks who are either listening to us for the first time or they're thinking, ah, they're teaming up again. We like those two. They've got big smiles on their faces as well. Exactly. Always with a smile when I talk to you. <laughs> well, 
Like other return guests, since this is our chat number two, we're going to skip my traditional starting point, what I call the seeds of awesomeness. We're just going to start chatting. This is going to be pretty informal, as I've been doing for um, some past episodes recently, where I've had other guests back for a bit more loose chat. And if they, if people want, they can, of course, hear more about your backstory. We did an episode in Smart and Simple Matters number 43, which I'll link to in the show notes. And that episode was, I think, two and a half years ago. And I'd say a fair amount has changed for us both since then. (laughs) Yeah, you're chuckling. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Understatement alert. Well, I'm just thinking for myself, and maybe I can speak for you for a moment. I think we've actually become a bit better on some of the things that we profess to be working towards. Um, Letting go, getting while the getting is good, whether that's getting traveling or um, leaving the things behind, whether they're work-related projects or relationships that aren't serving us, that aren't serving the others around us. Actually, for our last episode, you had just launched an online magazine called Romper. And I know that you cut the cord <laughs> to that. <laughs> You're laughing like, yep, Romper, I remember Romper. Oh, good times. Yeah, right? I remember that. <laughs> and you also created and fairly quickly shut down a private course slash community. Uh, there may be other things that I'm forgetting. Now, Brooke, in, in all fairness, I have also put a ton of time and energy into projects that I've had to cancel. The biggest example is just this year. Um, I had a Simple Rev 2016 event I was co-organizing. The 2014 and 2015 events were great. But when my Simple Rev partner and I, we could only sell two-thirds of our tickets by our self-imposed deadline, we had to cancel it. And ouch, that one hurt. Mm. Yeah, yeah. For you... (laughs) Has any of this letting go, getting while the getting is good process over the past two, three years, have you learned anything about yourself or about self-compassion or what it truly means to let go of some somewhat short-lived ventures? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. I think the one thing I will say is, so I was going to open up by saying I've learned to fail and fail fast and be perfectly happy with that, but I don't want you to feel like I'm like aligning your simple rev situation with my my failures because your simple rev project and the events that you put on and the community that you're building was far from a failure. It was more a matter of, you know, time and energy and all those kinds of things. But in terms of Romper and the Bloom, uh, it became really clear really quickly that my passions weren't, uh, particularly with Romper, I mean, that was something that, I saw a potential, you know, slow, simple living digital magazine and I thought I'd try it and I threw everything into it and it just wasn't there for me. You know, it's still a good idea and I'm sure someone else has or will pick up on it and run with it and it'll be great. But for me, it was that one was easy to let go of because I had no passion for it and that became really clear really quickly. With the bloom, which was the second kind of attempt, I guess, to to pull together a business around slow, simple living. It was a, like a private membership community site. It it was just way too much work. That was different because I was very passionate about helping people learn all the different sort of elements that they can, they can bring into a slow and simple life in order to, to live more intentionally, live more mindfully. And that one was very tough. I, I had probably a month of, going back and forward, like knowing that the number of hours I was putting into that work was massive and that I had pretty much painted myself into a corner where the expectation was for constant output from me and constant, you know, guidance and support and all those things that I really wanted to be able to provide people. I just did not have the capacity to do that. So there was a month or so where I had some really difficult conversations with people. I remember talking to one of my friends, you know, with tears sort of streaming down my face, figuring out what I needed to do. Because at that time I had also started the podcast and I really enjoyed that. And she said, you know, I was talking to her about it and I I was speaking about the bloom first of all. And then I started speaking about the podcast and she said, I just want to stop you because your voice sounded so different when you started speaking about the podcast. You were lighter. There was something really light and, and joy-filled there Whereas when you're talking about the other project, The Bloom, you want it to be a success, but you're just so weighed down by it. She said, I think there's something there. And in the end, that was the comment. That was the, the moment where I decided that 
I needed to to stop it and close it down. And I think what, one of the reasons that it, it, it wasn't as painful as it potentially could have been is because I was just honest with people and I said, look, I'm all about living a slower, simpler life. I'm not doing that by running this community and I want to help you guys, but this is not the way to do it. And if I was to continue talking about it, I'd be just a, a massive hypocrite. And everyone, absolutely everyone in that community was so 100% supportive of that. And, you know, the night that I, I kind of made the announcement, I slept so well because I knew that I was just moving in the direction that I needed to be moving. You mentioned you're in a lot of communities these days, or maybe you just bob in and out. I hear them uh, for guests that you chat with on the Slow Home podcast, um, whether it's um, low tox or plastic free or just experientialism and a whole bunch of things. What are the core communities that you would say that you're a part of right now? That's interesting. That's a really good question. I'm definitely sort of aligned to a lot of kind of movements and ideas at the moment. I honestly have to say I've, I've struggled to, to align myself to one particular kind of label, I guess is the wrong term, because what I've found specifically with minimalism is that applying it as this, you know, one size fits all kind of thing, which it's not, but that's what people who are looking at it from the outside tend to see, you know, they're people who live in stark white houses and they can count the items that they own and, you know, they, they don't have anything that's sentimental and all, you know, all these kinds of things that people assume of minimalism. I feel like that's incredibly, um, oh, it, it's, it's really taxing on me to kind of align myself with just one thing. So I think that's why I find myself dipping in and out of all these, these different communities. As you say, like the low tox living community and also, you know, going kind of low waste uh, in terms of the way we live our lives and experientialism specifically. I feel like I'm a much more well-rounded person when I dip into all of these different areas and these different elements, you know, and I'm not particularly good at being <laughs> well-defined in that way. So it helps me, I think, to, to add to my my toolkit of how to live this well-rounded, slower, simpler life by taking information and, and inspiration and experience and ideas from all of these communities and bringing it into what my life looks like. So, yeah, I think me and labels and me and, you know, one specific set way of doing things is not necessarily a great fit, but, but kind of taking those different elements from different communities really does fit very well for me and I feel like I'm, I'm probably doing life much better as a result now that I've let go of this idea of doing one thing you know quote unquote right and to be fair I don't actually think that that's what any any of those movements are but that's how I was trying to squeeze myself into this box that was labeled in such a way that meant that I could do this but I couldn't do that and I could do this but I can't believe in that so I think you know being able to allow myself to be a lot more fluid and and flexible in my approach to the way we live has helped a lot. Well, let me ask you this then, uh, in terms of what you're aligning yourself with and how you're thinking these days. Now, I don't hear you talking much about decluttering or purging stuff, uh, with the exception, we're recording this in October 2016, and I know you and Ben, for your slow home experiment on your podcast, you're currently doing the men's game to get rid of 500 items in your house this month, which is classic decluttering, at least as far as the mainstream has picked up on it. Is it is it weird for you to host a Facebook group? You've got, what, like over 10,000 people in your Facebook group, the annual declutter challenge one, when you don't run annual declutter challenges on your slow home, uh, web, slow your home website anymore? How do you reconcile that? Do you, do you even try? I, <laughs> I think it is important, and I do try, but I don't do a very good job of reconciling it. I kind of carry, to be perfectly honest, carry quite a bit of guilt around about the fact that that's sort of where I got my start in, in the simple living area was the person who wrote extensively about decluttering. And I, I have a, a real conflict, I guess, with it because it's, it's so important. It really is. That's not only where I got my start in terms of building my, you know, my blog and then my podcast, but also where I got my start in terms of building the kind of life that I wanted to live. It was by decluttering. It was by hitting rock bottom 
and realizing that I needed to make significant changes to the way that I was living, but recognizing that I couldn't do that from the out from the inside out. I was just in in a terrible place mentally and emotionally. But what I could do was start to make small changes to my physical environment. So that's why I started with decluttering, and it was vital, you know, really absolutely central to learning to simplify, learning to recalibrate what is enough and what is enough both externally and then internally followed later. So I really am conflicted by it because, you know, it's not the be-all and end-all and I don't want people to ever think that simply by decluttering or living minimally or simply uh, in terms of your physical possessions is going to magically fix everything because it, it's, it doesn't. It's a really important step. But there are people who have purged all of their belongings who either are still struggling with self-awareness or you know, mental well-being or physical health, and they're still really unhappy. You know, They might be discontent and it's got nothing to do with what they own or what they don't own. So I'm kind of in this really, yeah, a really you know, conflicted kind of place with it. I want to support people through that, but I also want to be able to encourage them that it's not the be-all and end-all of, of simplifying. In fact, it's just one element of it. So it's a wonderful community and it's pretty much self-supporting. Like, I can't take any credit at all for what happens in that group at the moment because they are just supportive and kind and helpful people, most of whom just want the same thing. They want the ability to be able to step back and let go and you know, and, and then move on to another area of life that they might want to change. So it, it definitely is a strange place for me to be in and I feel like I don't do a good enough job of, of kind of incorporating that into where I am now in terms of focusing more on slow living and intentionality rather than just the, the physical possessions. Yeah, I, I, you. what struck me was you said you feel guilt. I, I would imagine it's not a tremendous amount of it, but just that feeling, that kind of heaviness and lightness that we're, we're that seems to be a theme so far of what we're talking about. Not that I'm trying to draw themes out of thin air, but it's okay to move on from things, or not even to move on, to be proud to claim ownership of things that you've previously been a part of and that you still want to be a part of, while also letting people know that, hey, that might have been my big thing at one point or my initial thing, but now there's other things. There's other communities that I'm part of. And I'm sure the people in the Facebook group, most of the time, this, I'm sure you won't take this the wrong way, they don't even think about you. Uh, they're content with all the other people who are supporting them. And you personally don't need to support them too, which must be super cool to, as we facilitators like to say, hold space. You're holding space for people to have wonderful conversations and connections and share ideas and resources. And just that in itself, providing that for all these other people is a pretty magical thing. So that that's really cool. Uh, is this the group, like when you run Q&As on the Slow Home podcast, do you go to this group and ask them, hey, what, what things do you want me and Ben to talk about in our hostful episodes? Or are you reaching out to other people on Twitter or Instagram and other places um, as your, your people? Uh, both, actually. No, in saying that, I very rarely post in the annual declutter Facebook group because of what you just said. I mean, it took me quite a while, actually. And this is a pure ego thing uh, where <laughs> I, I was feeling this tremendous amount of guilt because, oh, you know, I've abandoned people. The reality is that the vast majority of people in that group don't know anything about me or the fact that I started it or anything because it's just this group of really supportive, awesome people. So it took me a while to kind of extricate my ego from that, if I'm being completely honest. And when I did, now I, I really don't want to to kind of, you know, manipulate or, or, or utilize that group in any way that's kind of self-serving because they've just done such a tremendous job of becoming this wonderful community. So when I reach out to people it's we've got a like there's a Facebook page as well, which is a slow home uh, Facebook page. And usually that's where the vast majority of people asking questions comes from. We get a handful via email and, and Twitter and uh, Instagram as well. But the community on our like our public Facebook page, as opposed to the group, is wonderful and asks some of the most insightful, incredible questions. And it's almost to the point that we just, we can't get around to answering them all. So it's, uh, yeah, it's such a, a fantastic community. I've noticed a big change in that and the engagement and 
the level of insight and awareness that has really emerged in that group has changed since we launched the podcast. Previous to that, it was just, it was a page that I had and, you know, I'd post links to things that I'd written or articles that people had suggested to me that might be helpful, but it wasn't a super engaged kind of group of of people. And since uh, I've been having, I guess, conversations with people twice a week, every week for the last, you know, 18 months, it's become a different sort of relationship. And that's really reflected in that particular community as well. That's cool. You can tell Mm. I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook because I have never visited the, and I'm going to have links to the show notes to all these social media profiles that you have. And if people want to go explore, they can. Uh, But I don't know that I've liked uh, the Slow Home Facebook page or really ever checked it out before. I just every once in a blue moon pop into the annual declutter challenge just to see what people are talking about. Wow. That's, that's great that this is just kind of like a lot of other things you've been involved in. You can't put your finger on it. You know that you are partially responsible for it, but a lot of things have just taken on a life of their own and snowballed in a really neat way. At the same, I noticed though that you talk about ego and not wanting to insert your ego into the annual declutter challenge group and remind people, Oh yeah, that was me. I'm the one who created it. Thank <laughs> You're welcome. Everyone. You're welcome for the fact that I, I've got this for you. You talked about abandoning people and to me. So this is just between, well, it's not between the two of us because thousands of people are going to listen to this episode and that's great. We want them to, <laughs> But you have done a really good job, in my opinion, of training people what to expect from you without making it explicit. Um, So, for example, I know you've been on periodic and extended online sabbaticals for four weeks, six weeks at a time, whether they're over holidays Mm -hmm. or just because you're traveling or for whatever reason it is. And you've even trained friends like me not to expect an email response from you for weeks. Uh, And still, still, I think you're the top. Oh, uh, see, because I, I, that's interesting that you say that. I feel like I'm a dreadful friend because I'm really slow on email. To be fair, I'm slow across the board on messages. Anyone who knows me, you know, personally knows that I often don't respond to text messages and things. And part of it is just like a rebelliousness. I just, I really have an issue with being constantly connected and attached to technology part of it is just the work that I've chosen to do and I accept that but it's really interesting I spend very little time on Facebook personally I couldn't tell you what the vast majority of people who I'm connected with personally on Facebook are up to because I just don't engage with it in that way it's almost purely in you know the other side of of my life which is work and I think that I I felt a lot of pressure initially to, you know, to be everywhere and to answer every, everything and every comment and every, you know, mention and all those kinds of things. And I just removed that should from my mind as best as I could, because if I did that, if I responded to every message, every comment, every anything, that's pretty much all I would do with my day. And that is the antithesis of living slowly and intentionally and also creatively because what I do for the most part is make stuff for people. And I, I, I literally wouldn't have time to do those things or at least not in a, in a sustainable kind of way if I spent all of my time, you know, ticking off on the to-do list, responded to every, every comment. And I did feel a lot of pressure and, and again, guilt, like not the, the really heavy, sad kind of guilt, but, you know, the guilt that's associated with the shoulds of life when I wasn't that person who was everywhere all the time. And it wasn't until I let go of that, that it was kind of a, you know, it's, it's, it's freeing, I suppose. I still, I think the one thing that I do find difficult, I guess, in, in managing and and being part of a community like that is that someone has taken time out of their day to send me an email or to send me a message or to ping me in a tweet or whatever it is. And I can't necessarily acknowledge the fact that I appreciate that without, you know, going in and answering every every message or every every tweet. And that's probably the thing that I feel the most poorly about, that someone has given their time or their energy and I haven't been able to actually respond to that. But I think the reality is just coming to terms with the fact that I can't do everything for everyone, um, you know, in 
in all of those instances and people who get it, people who understand. And I think that that's actually one of the biggest strengths of my community is that they do get it. That's why they're there to learn how to live, you know, a slower, more intentional kind of life. So they do get it. So when, when they get a response on Facebook, for example, they send me a message and I say something like, you know, thank you so much for your message. As someone who is trying to embrace the art of living a slower, more intentional life, I can't always respond to every message, but I do read them all and appreciate you taking the time to send me a message. And I feel better even just about that. Not so much because, oh, phew, someone gets a response, but because people understand what I'm trying to do. So what's the criteria that you use for determining who gets a response? Do you, do you know? <laughs> Have you ever spelled it out? Like if I were to send you an email and if every time I followed up within a two-week period, that was a strike against me and that would trigger your rebelliousness <laughs> and would make you say, all right, Zeslowski, yeah, you're not getting a response for an extra week as a result of it. Now, I know oh. you're, very, you're very nice and you probably wouldn't do that, of course. But how, uh, me, I'll, just, I'll take a step back here and I'll just talk about it. In the last couple of years, I have made a very intentional choice not to respond to a number of emails and texts that I get because they don't warrant a response in my mind. There was no mm-hmm. explicit question that was asked. There was no need that was urgent that required me to respond either then or at all. Uh, and some people will follow up with me like, hey, did you get my thing? Did you get my call? Did you get my voicemail? Did you get my text? Did you get my email? I'm like, yeah, of course I got it. I'm a hyper-organized guy. I get everything. But I just didn't, <laughs> I just didn't need to respond to that. And some people have gotten agitated uh, I haven't lost any friends over it or anything, but it makes me curious how other people deal with this constant split-second decision that we need to make so many times every day. What justifies a response? And I'm sure it's there's so much context, the medium, the relationship that you have with the person, but do you have any just general guidelines that you use that help you determine, does this require a response? My default position is No. It doesn't require a response. Like I, I will say for all of the areas of life that I have allowed myself to be overwhelmed, um, feeling pressured to respond to, I'm specifically talking about email now, um, feeling pressured to respond to every email has not really been one of them. And text messages and other things for me that drives my family mad. I, But I figure if, if someone's letting me know about a barbecue you know, and I'm just talking about a sister or, or something like that. We'd previously spoken about it. Here's a reminder. Great. Thank you. I'm now reminded. I don't feel the need necessarily to, you sent it, you've done your job. You need to assume that I've read it and we're on our way. It's fine. And it's, look, it's not, it's not something that I'm really proud of because I think that it makes me seem like a real jerk a lot of the time. But in terms of email if it doesn't require a response from me, if it's someone just letting me know something or that they've received something great in my mind, that's done, it's finished, that doesn't require a response from me. Uh, it gets harder when people are asking questions of me, but particularly if it's someone in my community who's asking me, you know, quite a, a personal or an in-depth in question, that I, I'm, I feel really uncomfortable if someone's written me a two-page email, for example, I feel really uncomfortable sending them back a one-line response because they've invested so much time to let me know their story and maybe ask me some incredibly, you know, personal questions. And I, again, I feel like a, you know... A is, that, is that how you were raised? Like, did your parents tell you that somebody sends you a birthday card, you send them a thank you card back that's at least as long, if not much longer, talking about how <laughs> significant this was and what a pivotal moment it is for you to get that $10 in the mail. And uh, Do you know where that comes from? I don't. I think it's got something to do with ego, you know, and, um, and, and it's tied in somehow with, you know, arrogance and, and all of those kinds of things, just like in terms of myself. I don't know how to articulate it necessarily. Uh, and I also think that some of it's tied to anxiety. I was reading recently actually about the notion of a high-functioning anxiety for people, and they spoke specifically about how much people who operate with high-functioning anxiety procrastinate on sending a simple email or a text message because they want the response to be exactly right. And I think that there's a lot of that in, in me, and I think it's now become 
more habitual because I, I'm much less anxious than I used to be. But, you know, the person with the high-functioning anxiety might, you know, ruminate on a, a response to an email or a text message for hours or days. And then it becomes a matter of, well, I've left it too late and I can't send an email because then I'll seem like, you know, I'm, I'm two weeks late and I'm a jerk. And so for me, I think initially it probably started somewhere in there and I didn't want to seem flippant. I didn't want to seem condescending. You know, I would question every single word in every single email that I wrote to people and it was exhausting just emotionally and, and mentally. And I think looking back, knowing what I know about myself now, what, you know, my old self was like, I think that there was a lot of anxiety tied up in that and that was probably a a big part of the reason that I couldn't just fire off a a quick thanks so much for email and you know I really appreciate your kind words Um, maybe check out this blog post or what about this article or maybe you know this person might have something that helps you like I I couldn't do that because I was concerned that I would seem something you know it didn't matter what that something was I would just seem something I, I'm sure I could link to a good episode that you and Kelly Exeter have done for Let It Be podcast. I know you've talked about perfectionism and other things. It's as somebody who's never had anxiety problems, and I've talked to other people about this before. If anything, going back to when I was young, I have a general inability to worry. And therefore, um, anxiety and depression have never really crept in because the trigger points that would create it for other people. It's not even, uh, it's, it doesn't happen for me. Like, it's not even on my radar um, for that to happen. But I know that just this general sense, or it's maybe acute based on certain triggers of anxiety, happens. Do you, you don't consider yourself as a person with high-functioning anxiety anymore. You have gotten past that? Is that fair to say? I think so. I mean, I have moments, and I have things that make me anxious. But on the whole... This year, this past 12 months has been a huge shift for me, I think, in terms of just the level of anxiety. Like, I will have stressful situations, but that no longer takes over my entire life. It doesn't impact my well-being. It doesn't impact my sleep anymore. It doesn't impact the way that I interact with people. And it's been really interesting. I haven't fully kind of come to to any sort of decision or, or, or full understanding of it, but I feel like my understanding of myself as a person is changing as well because I, I, I don't think I, um, I'm not as, as maybe as painfully introverted as I used to think that I was. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm still an introvert, but I, it's not as much of a stumbling block maybe as it used to be. And I think it's really challenging, I guess, my assumptions of who I am as a person as well, but anxiety is certainly not anywhere near as as big a a part of my life as it used to be. That's wonderful. I'm counting on your slightly decreased introversion over the months and years for when we meet in person the first time, because I am just (laughs) going to give you the biggest hug and I'm going to be so freaking excited and you're going to probably have to tell me, whoa, slow down, mister. Uh, (laughs) You're a little too much for me right now. So I'm counting on you getting to the point where you have that uh, fight or flight response and you're just like, you know what? I'm okay with this. I can handle Joel in person. Uh, so whatever work that you're doing or whatever's just naturally evolving out of you, my future self is grateful for it, along with uh, your future trajectory. <laughs> it's pretty great. I, I've got a couple itches, though, Brooke, that I need to scratch here. And I, th- these are just kind of random things that are popping up to me. I told you before we started recording, I am hopped up on goofballs. Uh, the silly pills, I don't know what it is. Uh, it's... Part of it is I didn't sleep well last night, and I get a little bit goofy on the the days after that. So, uh, <laughs> fair warning: you can click the uh, end call button on Skype anytime you like. <laughs> but <laughs> I one of the things that has never really made sense to me, and this is probably just a a subtle thing, or maybe just a difference in terms of how public you want to be. I view you as a very public person now. Uh, not necessarily in terms of the depth at which you share, although you're great at that too, but you're just, you're in a lot of places, social media wise, even though you don't spend a lot of time on them. Your podcast is prolific now and so many people listen. So I kind of think of you as a public figure. But one of the things that never has made sense to me, you or your husband, Ben, for people who don't know, who've never listened to the Slow Home podcast, when you talk about your kids, uh, it never sounds like, to me at least, that I can remember you actually say their names. 
Is that mm. intentional? For me, it is. Yeah. Um, ben does. He's quite happy to, and so it's, it's not like a, a you know hyper privacy thing. But uh, I made the call quite a while ago that my kids would get to own their their digital footprint, I guess. Um, and it's just what felt right for me, you know, intuitively, I suppose. So they don't feature on our uh, social media very rarely and never in a way that's kind of made them um, super obvious or they're certainly not central. And I think part of that was just me as a parent that that's felt like a protective measure for me to take for my kids. Also, I was an anxious kid uh, and an anxious teenager and I felt I, I, I kind of wondered what it would have felt like growing up with a parent who did talk about me in public, you know, in a, in a medium that had been recorded, uh, you know, for, for years and how that would, would affect my feelings of anxiety and my feelings of, of privacy and, and ownership of my own story. So that was definitely a, an intentional choice for me. Uh, it's not to say it's necessarily the, the right choice, but that's just what fits, sits right for, for me and my gut, which is honestly where most of my parenting decisions come from. I totally get that. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And for, for me, oftentimes, I, I do catch myself. So part of this is just in my past and this curatorial lens in which I view the world. Anytime I'm tempted to share something, because I'm an over-discloser, uh, I'm, I'm totally cool with talking about lots of different things, even if it's about my family. I talk about Grant and Clark and Melinda as often as possible. Grant he, I, I tell people, like, he's my six-year-old son, and Clark is three, and Melinda, and here's how we met, and all these things. But when it comes to specific stories or facets about them, oftentimes I'll leave that out. Uh, I, I mean, mm. I could, and I, I could, I wonder about that too. Just yesterday, Grant and I, we were walking to school. The kindergarten that he goes to is just two blocks away, and there was a, now I'm telling a story, <laughs> there was a, a dead sparrow <laughs> lying on the side of the road and I pointed at it and I said, hey buddy, check that out. Like there's a dead bird there and he kind of crouched down and he was looking at it and I said, go ahead, you know, you know pick it up. It, there weren't any ants or any flies on it. It must have just died within an hour or two. And he was so excited. He, we walked for another block. He was going really slow. He was just very gently, like opening its wings and seeing, like almost from a scientist perspective, like how does this work? Seeing the under layer of um, feathers underneath the top layer, and you know, touching the beak, and I thought it was just the coolest thing ever. But as I'm thinking about this too, like how, as people listen to this years from now, like how is he going to feel about the fact that people know that? Either his papa is weird because I encouraged him to pick up this dead thing and go play with it as we were walking to school, or you know, what are these kinds of stories? What impact is that going to have on them? Is it going to be positive? Is it going to be negative? Is it going to be a who cares? Is it going to be just something for everyone to laugh about? Because papa decided to talk to his friend Brooke about the time that you walked to kindergarten and you picked <laughs> up a dead sparrow and we had a good time for five minutes. These are the things that are really hard to think about and. If anything, the best thing that I, I, and I like what you do is don't even give yourself the opportunity to analyze it. Just if you, if you feel that like your discretion muscles are being tested, then err on the side of just don't share. Don't share names. Don't share stories. Exactly. Don't share whatever uh, you want because so much gets shared even when you don't want it to. The things that are within our control seem less and less every day. So for you to be able to make that choice, I'm glad that you do that for your kiddos. Yeah, I just, it's, it's just, uh, I've never regretted something that I haven't shared, put it that way. Um, you know, and I, I'm kind of, I'm quite intentional even with the things that I share personally. I mean, I get quite, I get quite personal. I talk about things that sometimes make others uncomfortable or people ask me if I've ever felt uncomfortable or regretted sharing anything. And I haven't simply because, uh, Brene Brown, I think it was who, who speaks about the idea that if you hear her talking about something, even if it's something that seems really deep or personal or, or private even or raw, it's not raw to her because she's done her processing of it. And I really adhere to that kind of guideline in, in what I share about myself as well. If I have, if I share it, even if it sounds super personal, 
I, I've made my peace with it. I've processed it. I've done my thinking. I've, I've kind of come to my conclusion on that thing before I share it publicly. Not to say that I can't change my mind because I totally can and I totally do, but like, I'm still okay with that because I can say for these reasons this is what I thought, for these reasons over here this is what I now think. And I, I think to me that's a, a big difference between oversharing and engaging you know, openly and with, I guess, vulnerability or authenticity or something with people. It's by having already taken ownership of, of your thoughts and your feelings and your experiences you know, come to a conclusion and then then share it. And I think that that is how I've managed to to still feel that, yes, I make things that face the public. And, and on, you know, initial inspection, that doesn't seem to gel very well with someone who's quite introverted and quite uh, anxious. But once I realised that that's what I was doing, that I had this kind of protective strategy in place, it was fine and I've never shared something that I've regretted before, mostly because I do that questioning, you know, do I feel at all weird about this? Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why you're such a good interviewer now is because you don't have to make any split second decisions about whether you interrupt or share something specific. You just have a, a default, a baseline that you can fall back to at the subconscious level and ad lib something or share a little story to build upon a story that a guest that you have on your show just gave you. I mean, <laughs> you're really, really good now at interviewing people. And I I tell people this from time to time, your podcast is is big time. And I've I'm a pretty humble guy, I like to think, but I boast about how I was the first guest on your show uh, <laughs> and how I, I knew before you even started it how much uh, that was going to boost my street cred in the Simple Living and Zombie Apocalypse Appreciating Circles. So thank you for that. Oh, you are so welcome. But thank you for, you were the first person who's like, you're starting a podcast, fantastic, Sonia. Like you were just into it and supportive from day, you know, previous to day one. Uh, so that was amazing to have someone as, as wonderful and open and sharing as you. I, you know, interviewing to take a, a kind of tangent is it, it's, it can be a really tough thing to, to get a handle on. Don't you think? Do you think about yourself as interviewing people, the guests that you bring on the show? Because you could probably tell that I don't think about the conversations like the one that we're having right now. I use the word chat when I tell people, yes. Hey, would you like to come on smart and simple matters? I said to have a chat with me. I might ask you some questions, but if you want, you can ask me questions too, and we can riff and do all kinds of things. It's just a chat that people end up hearing. So yes, it's, it's difficult just to have a chat that you know is going to be public. It's even more difficult to facilitate a great interview and to keep the focus and the value on the person who you brought on to feature their words and voice like I'm doing with you now, while also still adding value yourself. So yeah, it, it is really hard. But do you, do you think about yourself as doing interviews when you're having somebody on your show? Not necessarily. Uh, I think that an interview, like a, a traditional interview, is a very different thing to what you and I are doing now and to what I try and, and do on my podcast. I think I much prefer having conversations with people, partly because I think you get to, to maybe go in a little deeper, but also because, to be honest, people listen to your show, they listen to my show, to also hear what you or I have to say about something. And I think there's a fine line, first of all, between dominating a conversation with, well, what I think, and this is my story, and this happened to me on the way here, and you know, to having a conversation where you let your guest shine and let their you know input be the main part of the conversation. But I think it's People really enjoy that conversational style, providing you're switched on enough to, and this is what I find difficult about it, and this is why I kind of equate it to an interview, because my brain is sort of split in two. Half of it is listening very intently because I'm part of this conversation, and the other half is trying to think about where we need to go next if there's not a clear you know, moment in their answer or their response that I can say, tell me more about that. If there's not, you need to have something ready to go. And I'm, I really don't like the idea of having a list of questions and just kind of running through them because you miss things, you know. So you really need to kind of have this active brain that's split in two very different directions. So I think in that regard, it's sort of similar to an interview. But I think a, a traditional interview, you just give your guest way more space and you you maybe maybe have done more preparation than I typically do for a conversation, but you, you kind of, lead people through their story. There's a, an amazing 
interviewer in Australia called Richard Feidler. He does a, a phenomenal job. And I was at a, a conference recently where he and his producer spoke about the process that they go through in order to prepare for an interview. And it's it was amazing. It was so wonderful to hear not only, you know, the, the, the lengths that they go to to prepare for a, a conference, uh, a, a conversation, an interview, but also what that results in, you know, and he basically says he tries to be invisible in his, in his job as an interviewer. And I don't think that that's necessarily what you or I do. Uh, yeah, but I, I find it, it's just such a, a different set of skills. I, lo- I love this topic. If, if I thought that other people love talking about just conversational, putting conversations out in the public realm, um, I would go on and on and talk to you about it. I have a feeling people don't <laughs> want to hear about that, so I won't yeah, talk about this is why you're good at your job. <laughs> Tim Ferriss episodes with a guy named Cal Fussman, who just is an unbelievable interviewer and just more than anything else, storyteller. Uh, and he the ability that he has to draw to just elicit stories from other people that that skill itself the ability to listen really well to take either mental notes or just jot down real quick a word on a piece of paper that's not distracting you from the conversation you're having and then without explicitly saying now let's circle back to that thing that you talked about 15 minutes ago Mm. because I want to go back there and get deeper into it but the ability to do that and how transferable that is to your interpersonal relationships um, to your ability to be a good friend and a good family member there is a huge correlation between people who ask really good questions, whether it's, it's in an interview format or not, and who are also just really fascinating, curious people. And I've found myself gravitating more and more to the people who are really good at asking the right question or just a totally out of the blue, like, that makes no sense, but, oh, I totally see where you're going with that. Cool. Can I come along? Those kinds of things just, they thrill me. Um, so instead of talking about that, which I've just done for two minutes, <laughs> I'm going to ask you real quick, With we've been talking about podcasting and being in the public and a lot of things that some people who are listening are like, great, I don't have a podcast, um, I'm not on social media, and a lot of our people, um, they're not. They listen to us and they appreciate us and hopefully they chuckle along, but um, they're not really all that public. For you, though, I've seen your emphasis on the podcast so heavily and I can even just see it. I'm on the Slow, uh, Slow Your Home website right now, and I haven't been there for a couple of months, but on your main navigation menu at the very top, you have three labels, about, podcast, and events. Uh, and that, to me, how did you get to the point where you could get away with just three main navigation links on your menu and not have contact and here's a link to this awesome product or service I want you to buy or, or, or eventually know about or start here? D- did you... You've just continued to kind of strip away uh, a lot of the things in your life to their more essential elements. How did you do that with your website? That's a really, it's a really interesting question. Actually, I hadn't really considered it as a form of, of, of decluttering, I suppose. But it was just a matter of continually questioning what was necessary. I think, and that's, I guess, how I try to approach. A lot of life I'm certainly not great at it but you know and that was probably one reflection of it also it, it just I, f- I find myself getting uh, overstimulated really easily now you know I think part of it's just getting older part of it's just because I know what I like and what my kind of levels are but you know visual clutter and, and even you know too many options really just uh, confuse and overwhelm me. So I certainly didn't want my my website to reflect that. Uh, and it was just a, well, I think it was probably like most of the decisions that I make, a real a gut instinct thing. Like, oh, I can get rid of that and I can get rid of that. And if people, you know, want to get in touch with me, there are plenty of other ways to do it. But yeah, it's a, that's a really interesting observation to have made. Well, see, I've gone the other direction, which is why I ask, because I am aware that people will get overwhelmed. And if people go to joelsoslowski.com and they don't know me, then I've got about 10 seconds. And if they don't see something that they're interested in, poof, they're Mm -hmm. gone. So I have six Mm -hmm. main navigation labels right now in my menu. And then I've got drop downs, of course. Like you don't even have drop downs. It's not like your about page has mine. I'm looking at, I've got sub pages for my story, 
the the book that I wrote a while ago, Experience Curating, um, the Continuous Creation Challenge, this cool thing that no one knows about, but that I wish more people did. And that's why I put it in the submenu of my about label. So I'm just wondering, and it's totally working for you as well. Can you teach people how to get comfortable with the fact that they have so much to give, but they can be comfortable with the fact that they can just, especially digital, with their own home, with their online home, like Slow Your Home is your thing. JoelZislowski.com is my thing. Can you coach somebody on how to get to the point where you're at? Like, can you, what would you say to me or what would you say to other people who want to start a website or already have a website? How could they simplify just what they're presenting to people? Do you have any general guidance there? Uh, I would start by embracing that you're in a laziness. <laughs> I honestly think you, you were talking to me. Yeah, yeah. I do think there is an element of that because I used to be obsessed with, you know, optimizing my website to whatever the current standards were. I used to check analytics all the time. I used to read multiple websites every day about how to create the most effective, the most like in your face, you know, in even in a simple kind of slow way, but the, the most powerful online experience for people who happen to stumble across my website. I used to be obsessed. I couldn't tell you the last time I looked at my analytics or um, read a, this is terrible really for someone who works online, uh, who read a, a, a website or a blog post or an article or anything about how to improve my web presence. And I think part of it is because I burnt myself out on that quite a few years ago and part of it is laziness and part of it is also just that it doesn't seem to be impacting me in a negative way although you were as you were explaining your home site your home page and all the different menu options a voice in the back of my head saying you really should be doing that you know you really you don't have a clear for you don't have a clear kind of path for a new visitor to take once they hit your home page and think oh gee I, I kind of like what I see what should I do next I don't have anywhere for people to go so you know I probably <laughs> am shooting myself in the foot in some ways and part of that is is uh laziness honestly uh but the other part is just thinking you know I there's only a certain number of things that I can focus on at any one time that's on the list somewhere down the bottom that you know keeps getting shuffled off down to the bottom because it's not that much of a priority for me honestly uh and that's yeah that's probably not great advice and it's certainly not helpful to someone who's just starting out but I I have been through a few iterations of the website and I can honestly say that the last time I looked at you know how the website was performing it's changed purpose a lot in the last two years where it used to be a blog that I updated multiple times a week now it's basically just a hub for the podcast and for people to get in touch with me and the numbers haven't changed you know the way people interact with the website hasn't changed at all over that period of time so um yeah I feel like I'm giving terrible advice to people that they should probably ignore I would ask you to reclassify your laziness into a heart-centered website. Um, I'm kind of thinking like you're evoking images of Courtney Carver with Be More With Less. Uh, and I know she doesn't look at her analytics and stats every day. Like She has a very heart-centered business and heart-centered approach to it too. And I've seen you go more in that direction. And I, and I really like that. Uh, I aspire to that. One of the reasons why I think you're so nifty uh, and why I follow you so closely is because you pull that stuff off without even thinking about it and it works for you. <laughs> and I'm like, dang, she's not even trying here. <laughs> but you could, to pat myself on the back just ever so slightly, I don't have a sidebar on my website and I'm really happy about that design decision. Mm. And you could totally remove, I'm just looking right now, like you've got your classic sidebar that you've had for the years since I've been looking at it. You could throw that at the bottom and get rid of a sidebar and even streamline even more. And that would, yeah, I'm not, I'm not demanding that you do that. It's just merely a suggestion. If you want to take things in a, in a further path as you're going. I like that suggestion. I think I, I'm going to add that closer to the top of my list. <laughs> Most importantly right now, when will I and tens of thousands of other North Americans who think you're the tops. Did I get that right, by the way? I'm working on my Aussie slang. Is it just, do I think you're tops if you're fantastic, or do I think you're the tops? 
you think that I'm tops. You're tops. Okay. Not the tops. So yeah. let me try that again. Um, when do I and lots of other folks in North America who think you're tops get a chance to see you in person on our continent? Oh, hopefully next year. Fingers crossed. We've got a couple of events that Ben and I are looking at attending in the middle of the year, maybe summer in the States, but I don't know if that will be a flying visit or not. Um, but hopefully towards the end of next year, we'll be doing a more lengthy trip, um, you know, traveling across across the country, hopefully, in a big old RV or something similar and, you know, doing some, some workshops and things like that. I would... Honestly, I would love to take the Slow Home podcast on the road and, you know, maybe even kind of talk about slow travel and that kind of stuff while we're doing it. But I have found a huge amount of interest actually in in people, not just our podcast listeners, but podcast listeners in general of attending live recordings of their favorite shows. Yeah. So I'd love to do something like that too. That would, that would really, you know, make me very happy. Oh, I'm sure you could pull it off too. This is a somewhat recent phenomenon that I've been catching up in the last three, six months is podcasts, not even like the biggest podcasts ever that they take their show on the road and they, whether it's Mm -hmm. a hundred person coffee shop that they rent out or big auditoriums. And it's just really cool to see these traveling shows, like turning a podcast episode into a show and having interactive parts of it with the audience that is really cool. And if I felt, if I had the kind of family life to do that kind of thing, I would, I don't. So I, I don't even think about Mm. it. Um, if I was say more big time and I could think that I could actually pull that off, I know that I could execute it from a project and from a logistics perspective. I just don't have enough people to listen to me, but that encourages me just for the world of connection and the world of podcasting. Two things that I think about a lot is intermingling those things in a more intimate way and that'd be really cool to see your adventures in that if it happens. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about that. Ben and I have been to a couple of um, uh, podcast recordings. I mean, most recently we went and saw the Comedy Bang Bang tour when they hit Sydney, which was ridiculously hilarious. And they, um, I mean, they're big, big time podcasts, but they sold out at two or 3,000 um, seat theatre in Sydney. And it was just brilliant, yeah. It was fabulous. Unfortunately for them, whoever booked their, <laughs> their gigs booked a, it's actually a, it's called the Metro Theatre, but it's more for music performances and it didn't have seats. So I don't know if you've ever tried to watch two and a half hours of comedy standing up, but it was probably not ideal for them in the end. But it was such a fun show and it really, our show is nothing like that. That's just improv and, and craziness and, you know, hilarity, but yeah, I real I just I don't know. I it it really interests me the idea of as you say kind of intermingling the idea of podcasting and people and connection and you know being able to have real conversations with people so. Right on. Well, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you would like to talk about or that you would like people to know? I could talk to you for hours, Joel, honestly. <laughs> There's like a list of 500 things that just jumped into my brain, but I need to keep it simple. I need to keep it on brand. All right. All right. We'll reel myself back in and I'll reel you right in and and we'll just, I'll, I'll cue you up right now, Brooke, like I normally do. I will just simply ask for people who want more of you, Ben, your husband, who's hilarious and I love as well. And I've really enjoyed him and just your whole world of awesomeness. Where would you like people to go? Go to slowyourhome.com is the easiest place to find us. And, uh, yeah, all the socials that um, yeah, we link to on there. So, yes, head to slowyourhome.com. By the <laughs> way, folks, a slight programming note. Brooke and I got off a side conversation for about a minute and a half, and now I can't get back into, hey, Brooke, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so grateful mode. So I'm just going to say, Brooke, you rock. We're going out like this. Yeah. All right. Brooke's great, isn't she? Man, if I knew more Australian slang that I could actually use within context and understand its meaning, I would totally say the equivalent of, you rock, one more time. Alas, it's probably best if you just go deeper into Slow Your Home and the Slow Home podcast, all the other places that Brooke fancies from time to time online. I say, show her some love. Find the links to all the stuff we spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, and more grooviness in the show notes 
at joelzeslovsky.com slash S-A-S-M-1-1-1. And if you're not already a podcast subscriber, an email newsletter getter, dude or dudette, or you want to see what my website navigation menu looks like these days, you'll also find out quite easily at joelzislavsky.com slash S-A-S-M 111. And just like that, boom, I'm out. With a heap of gratitude for your time and attention, of course. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zislavsky. Now go simplify something. Hug someone or get your sexy spreadsheet on.